You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Folks, recently I had the incredible privilege of sitting down with Ruth Haley Barden, the author of, among other books, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. She reached out to see if I'd be interested in having an ongoing conversation about the integration of systems theory and soul health on her podcast of the same name, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And uh, having recorded it, we thought it'd be really great just to put it on both of our podcasts. So yeah, this is primarily an interview that Ruth is interviewing me, but really the spirit of it was a conversation. I think there's so much great stuff that Ruth offers here that I uh, just thought I'd share these next several episodes with you as we wrap up this uh, season of MLA. So hope you enjoy. Well, friends, we're back and I'm here once again with Steve Cuss, who is a pastor and also the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, And here we're going to talk about the sins of the fathers, understanding family of origin. And in our last episode, uh, we began talking about some of these fundamental components to understand systems theory. And And family of origin is one of the really significant components in understanding systems theory, because one of the things that I'm really aware of is that people are never just dealing with the situation they're in. They're always bringing whatever you know, however they were shaped in their family of origin and continuing to work those things out in their current relationships. And so let's talk about that as it has to do with our leadership and has, as it has to do with uh, listening and observing the context, the emotional context, even as we listen to the content. Uh, so Steve, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about the significance of family of origin as it has to do with systems thinking and theory. Oh, I love that question. It, it's it's actually, this question is what put systems theory on the map? Because mm-hmm. uh, Murray Bowen, who founded this theory, he came along in the mid-50s and really got it going in the early 60s. He was really the first in psychology to say, look, we need to look at not just the nuclear family, the child, mm-hmm. the family, you, the house you were raised in. We also need to look at the multi-generational traits of your family And that was such a light bulb for me, Ruth. Like, you know, obviously I do have a funny last name. And so it's funny to hear it, but but like we do have what I guess I would call a family propaganda as cusses. And one of the things that was when I dug into systems theory very early on, I did this thing called a genogram, which Mm -hmm. I know we'll talk about. And as I'm presenting my genogram, which is essentially a map of my multi-generation family, going back to my great-grandfather, all my cousins, uncles, and aunts uh, are all on this map. The group that I'm presenting my genogram to, they were having a light bulb moment because we'd worked together for a few months by this point, maybe six or eight weeks. We were chaplains together. And they said, oh, that's why you communicate the way you do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, Steve, you're, you're like the Pope. You, you, you talk as if you're the Pope, that when you speak, it just is. Like you really do seem to think that Hmm. your opinion is exactly ex-cathedra reality. Now, of course, anytime you're learning about yourself in a group, it's very vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure I got defensive. I actually don't remember my reaction. What I remember inside me is saying, that's true. They've told me something about myself that's Mm -hmm. true that I was blind to. 
But this is a multi-generational cuss. What should we call it, Ruth? A gift, a delight that when, when a cuss is in the room, we just think we know better. The and gift of course, that keeps on beating everyone up, I guess. Maybe? Oh, my goodness. I mean, and, <laughs> and, and of course, it, you know, of course, it's covering some kind of pain in the cuss family or some kind of wound or, you know, some false need, right? Like, but, but, but systems theory, it encourages you do, to do two very difficult things. It encourages you to look at the household in which you were raised and to really come to terms with the messages you adopted as a child and how you bring those messages into your adulthood in helpful and unhelpful ways. So if I look at my childhood, what's interesting about this, Ruth, is, is you know, in our last episode, we really made a case to say this isn't about blame. Mm-hmm. Never, so, never more so true than when you're doing family of origin work. Yes. If you're doing your family of origin work so you can finally blame dad and finally blame mom, mm-hmm. it's going to be futile. Right. But if you can say... Let's stop blaming and let's just look at what messages did I inherit? So in my case, I had a very smart and have a very smart older sister. She was a whiz at school. What's also true about Tony is she worked very hard. I tended to be pretty lazy academically. And so for a variety of reasons for that, also because I didn't know how to talk to girls when I was a teenager, they freaked me out Hmm. and I would get all like, Bumbly, and then I'd walk away from a conversation and, and replay it in my head. And then the third issue for me is I was terrible at sports, but I thought I was amazing at sports until I tried out for a team. So you can already kind of see some of these traits. My view of myself as a little boy, radically mm-hmm. different than reality. That'll mm-hmm. make you anxious when, when you meet reality. And so all of these kind of formed a message for me that I'm stupid. I just spent most of my childhood and even my teenagehood really thinking I'm a stupid kid. I'm a stupid person. And last episode, I was talking about being in an elders meeting and not knowing the answer. Well, it doesn't take much to realize that my feeling of stupidity as a kid is directly related to my need as an adult to always know the answer to a question. It's very basic. But until I do that family of origin work, it's very painful work, it's very vulnerable work. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to actually allow God into an area of my life that I'm managing on my own. Um, so there's that trait. And then the more interesting trait for a lot of people is the multi-generational traits. When you see abuse, um, mm-hmm. you can see addiction, mental illness, passed down generation to generation. You know, the Old Testament in Exodus and also Jeremiah uh, in Exodus, it's the sins of the father are handed down to the third and fourth generation. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Mm-hmm. Now, we can read those verses through a kind of a curse, which is the way I think we typically take them in, in our first glance. I, I w- I'm more interested in saying, what if, if Moses or whoever wrote Exodus and what if Jeremiah are just naming reality. This is the way family works. His traits are transmitted mm-hmm. generation to generation until one generation says, let me sift these traits through the gospel. I've, I've facilitated over 100 genograms now. I remember one of them, very powerful, where he found the family Ku Klux Klan letter mm. and burnt it ceremonially, got the family and had a ceremonial burning to say, as for me and my house... 
that's not who we are. We are about the opposite. Like he was, what he was doing was taking a family generational trait and sifting it through the gospel and making a bold declaration. So, yeah, let's see where you want to go, Ruth, because obviously this is a big topic, but it's so powerful and 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 so rich. Mm-hmm. Well, it strikes me that again, if we don't know, this is a way of knowing what's happening within us when we talk about yeah. the non-anxious presence or the calm presence. That if you don't know what's going on within you and what's getting touched in you, you can actually be out of touch with what's really real in a given moment. So somebody does something very innocently, they didn't mean anything by it, but it touches something in you that has to do with a generational trait or characteristic or pattern or wound. And you're reacting to them as though they were someone in your family around that wound. And then all of a sudden their hair's blowing back because they got a really huge reaction for something that they offered up very innocently. Yeah. And sometimes that huge reaction looks like a tight, like a with getting smaller too. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'll be in a situation and someone will touch something on you and you'll shrink yourself down and diminish yourself. Yeah. 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 It, it's interesting work because if chronic anxiety is built on false assumptions and false beliefs, what often happens in our family is we take, Things that might be true, but we make them universally true. And I think that's where we get bound and, mm-hmm. and stuck. So what I call it at least is family propaganda. I'm, I'm inviting people to look at the family propaganda that they've inherited and, and to really sift it through the gospel of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, Ruth, I was pretty young when I started this family of origin work because chaplaincy required it. I was 24. Mm-hmm. What, what was the situation for you? What was going on where... How old were you, for example, when you decided to look into family of origin as it relates to spiritual yeah. growth? Well, I, it was in my early 30s, and I think it, it was really because there were things in my family that I didn't understand and that we weren't solving in the normal with the normal tools that my parents had. Um, so my parents had, at that time, they had Dare to Discipline, by Jim Dobson, and they had Bill Gothard. And so if that, that will tell you a lot that I'm naming, that those were two of the greatest influences on my parents' parenting, and that they didn't have much more. There wasn't much more for that generation. And there are real limits, and in some ways, those teachings contain things in them that are very, very destructive, actually, as well. So there was, it was a curiosity, it was a stuckness, it was hitting up against the wall of what I had in my family of origin, and even more than the typical Christian piety, like reading the Bible more and praying more and trying harder, I was pretty much done with that too, because I had done all that for many, many years, and that wasn't getting me unstuck either. So it was really this sense of casting about and looking for something else that would give real insight to what our family was experiencing and then, you know, what I was experiencing within myself. There's so much here, Ruth. I, I, if, you, if you're comfortable, I'd love to dive in on three different areas on this. The first one would be <laughs> your parents. Mm-hmm. And what I love about what you shared, you actually named some books. Uh, what's interesting to me is System Series, not about blame. You shared it in a way. You, you weren't blaming. But what was probably going on, I would imagine, with your parents is none of us really know how to parent. And here right. we are with these kids. We're looking for someone to, to help us. Mm-hmm. And so they did the best they could with what they had. And yet what happened to you as a kid is that then formed a message in you. I wonder if you'd be willing to share, okay, what meaning did you make as a kid that you brought into adulthood? Yeah. 
Well, that we that you know that we were all so sinful, and it was the, kind of the worm theology, and that the you know the discipline, the harsh discipline, and you know maybe some children need that, but I didn't. But my parents didn't know how to nuance that at all, and so there was an experience that I had, and this was a little bit later on, but I understand it now through systems thinking is that I, I was treated harshly at a church where I was on staff and unfairly. And I didn't know what it was about. I didn't understand it. I'd never been treated that way before. And I, my reaction was to sort of lay down and die. And the people who around me who were watching it says, said, Ruth, why don't you stand up for yourself? You know, you don't deserve to be treated that way. Why don't you stand up for yourself? And I didn't have an answer to that question. I didn't know, but I physically, literally, viscerally could not could not stand up for myself. But I didn't know where it came from, but it, it felt old and it felt primal. And I had a really, really good spiritual director at the time who was also a psychologist. And, and I told her, I said, this feels really primal. I just can't, people think I should be standing up for myself, but I just can't. And so that was the getting small. So that would be my thing is I, I don't get big, I get small. And so she said, if you really want to know where that comes from in your life, just ask God to show you. <laughs> and and I, that it was an amazing thing for a spiritual director to do because it never occurred to me to ask God to show me something that I knew was outside my awareness. And so the Lord answered that prayer, and I saw myself as a very young girl, four years old or something like that, you know, the bl- blue eyes and this flyaway blonde hair. I, I literally saw myself and saw an experience of getting treated very harshly as a child with a spanking. And my parents were still alive at the time. They're not alive now. But I I decided to approach my parents and to ask them about what I saw. And my mother immediately kind of fell apart. And she was actually able to talk about the fact that they parented me in a way that was harsher than what was necessary. She said, you know, all we had to look do was look at you and you would obey and all of that. But instead, we were very harsh with you with spankings and things like that based on what they had read. And she said, we didn't need to do that, but we didn't know it. And she was so sad and so sorry. And yet that was a really important moment for me to realize that it was something in my really young life that shaped me into a person who had a hard time standing up for herself when that would be the right thing to do. Because that was in our family system. And I realized that the belief that went with that was that I'm, I'm, I'm so bad that I probably deserve that treatment, you know, because I'd been treated harshly when I was a child. And she actually had a very specific incident where I came running towards her with desire to hug her. And she thought I was being rambunctious and actually punished me at that moment. And so she was able to describe for me the exact moment that I had seen when I asked God to show it to me. So, you know, and I had to be aware that probably forever it's going to be hard. It's not going to be natural for me to get big and stand up for myself. It's going to be way more natural for me to believe there must be something flawed in me. I must deserve this. And so I can't stand up for myself. Does that make sense? It does. And I think what you're modeling for us, there's so much here from a systems perspective that's really worth digging in on because first of all, you're curious about yourself and that's that's one of the most tangible things we can do is when we notice that we're anxious, we start to figure out where's this coming from and for you, you traced it all the way back to family of origin. So you use curiosity, but, but then in this case, you engage the Lord and I do think yes. this is such an incredible vista 
of spiritual growth for so many Christians that they've never, like this is what's exciting to me, Ruth, is, mm-hmm. is people can listen to this and go on a family system spiritual journey. I, I'm always concerned that people think I've got one channel, um, systems all the time, you know, K systems, all systems all night long. <laughs> I'm not, I, 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 all I'm interested in is spiritual growth. Yeah. And I just think that this is one of many helpful tools. I don't even think this is the best or the only tool. But I will say, if you haven't let the Lord seep in to your family of origin, you do have an incredible vista of growth. But you took it a step further. Like a lot of people aren't brave enough to go back to their family and have these conversations. What was that like for you when she was reflecting on your childhood? Well, I mean, it was a it was a tremendously healing gift, and I know that not every person is going to have a family that would receive a question like that. Yeah. I mean, I know that she did something that was absolutely remarkable, and that many adults go back and they want a, a deeper and a better understanding of what happened for them in their childhood, and their parents are defensive and closed and just can't go there and won't do it. So I'm. It was one of the greatest gifts. She gave me many gifts, but that was a, one of the greatest gifts she's ever she ever gave was the ability to be with me and to name a truth that I knew. I experienced it. But rather than saying, no, that's not real, she actually gave me the gift of validating the fact that I had experienced what I remembered experiencing and was really sorry and repentant. She said she was sorry. She actually apologized in the moment. So... I think the reason I choose to tell that story is because there is so much in it. There was, first of all, the awareness of the fact that not everybody would lay down and die and take it like I did. And I was, like you said, I was curious about why can't I stand up even though people around me are saying that I should. Other people, it would come very naturally to stand up and fight. But I didn't do, I was the possum. I laid down and died. And then the prayer, the fact that I had a spiritual director who encouraged me to ask God to show me what God wanted to show me. That was a gift. If I hadn't prayed, I don't think I'd have gotten the the awareness that I got. Yeah. And then thirdly, the ability to go back into your family system and actually yeah. do some processing. Like you said, all three of those things are there in that moment. And, you know, I think we all have many things we could share, but I, I just feel like this is where we start to see the real gift of systems theory combined with a spirituality. That's you know, right. Yeah. Where yeah, we're, Dr. Kurt. yeah, where we're inviting God in versus seeing these things as bifurcated. I th- it's essential what you just mentioned because I think there's no real path to freedom on doing this work on your own versus doing it with the Lord. I, I, I love mm-hmm. what you just said there, Ruth, because all of this work is for the sake of freedom and peace. I, I just, several years ago, I just noticed, and I know this is your journey too transforming the soul of your leadership, right? Like, like we, we have the same, sorry, strengthening the soul of your leadership. We have the same story that both of us woke up one day and said, the gospel I'm proclaiming, I'm not believing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not living it. Mm-hmm. And my experience, I think it's your experience too, is that's a very common experience in ministry. Mm-hmm. And I remember a, a retired pastor telling me when I shared it with him, he said, well, it'll come back when you retire. Whoa. And I remember thinking, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Like, that's I not good enough. No, <laughs> that is deal. not the yeah. right answer. And, and it, he, he said it in a way that was like, you have, you, it's sacri- you're sacrificing for the kingdom. But I was really intrigued by, well, what if I could experience the thing that I proclaim and that all of my proclamation is out of the overflow of my experience? Like my, the peace and love that I'm receiving. And that does lead me to a couple of things, Ruth. If you're comfortable digging in a bit more on your story, 
a couple of things that struck me is is what happens is the beliefs that we bring into adulthood from our childhood experiences are so deeply entrenched we don't even know we believe them. Mm-hmm. Right. That's where right. I think inviting the Lord in. And so for you, it was this this fundamental idea that I'm a worm. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with that theology. But probably I would imagine, I'm making an assumption about you, so I'd love you to check me on this. I would imagine that there wasn't even the option to test that belief for years. It wasn't up for grabs because it just is. But something in you broke when you said, let me take a look at this theology and how it's impacted me. Was that scary for you? I think it's it, like, did. by the way, Ruth, I'm famous for asking convoluted questions if you stick with me. But, oh, okay. <laughs> but as you go on the journey from I'm a worm to I'm God's beloved, my experience is that journey comes with some fear that I'm slacking off or getting it wrong. What was it like for you to go from I'm a womb to I'm I'm beloved? Um, Well, I mean, I think that is the whole journey, you know, for people who are raised in that kind of fundamentalist environment, you know, and then when, and and then when you tack, it's not just the theological belief about wormness, but it was a way of raising children. It was a belief about children. You know, that children are these little yeah. maniacs that you have to, that they're, that, you know, the heart is, is, you know, deceptively wicked above all things. And it's the parent's job to beat it out of you. You know, all that stuff. Do you know what I mean? I do. The gospel starts at Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, even the journey into solitude and silence, which has been a profound journey for me, was the journey into experiencing God's love for me beyond the doing and beyond the behaving and beyond the trying really hard to be good, that in solitude and silence, to me, one of the most incredibly beneficial things that happens in a real practice of solitude and silence is that we experience the love of God, you know, for ourselves as we are in the midst of whatever, you know, the great unfixables of life, whatever it is that we're naming and knowing about ourselves, whatever it is we've experienced in our lives, however addicted we are to performance and achievement. You talked about that some in your own life. Mm-hmm. That in solitude and silence, when we let all that fall away and we receive the pure love of God for ourselves just as we are and the compassion of God for us in the midst of the human experience, that's why solitude and silence are so profoundly transforming is because we experience the presence of God unmediated by, you know, all the other voices that have spoken to us about ourselves through the years. Yeah. As we dig into family of origin, you know, one of the things we probably should cover is actually a genogram. It is a technical... Yeah, please. Yeah, you mentioned it, and I wanted you to describe that a little bit more fully for our mm. listeners who are not familiar. Yeah. So so if you take... Uh, a lot of people love to talk about their family, whether they've had good or bad experiences in their family. People just like talking about their family. And so if you think of a family tree, that's a helpful thing to think about. A genogram is essentially a family tree that is mapped to show emotional relationships and relational patterns. So by the time you're done, um, there's colored lines on it and there's labels on it. And so it looks like a family tree. You generally try to genogram your family back to your great-grandparents if you can. And what you're trying to do is figure out what are the generational traits that have been passed down? What cards have I been dealt? Uh, one of the simple questions we ask people, a very simple question, and this could be just something people could ask this week. What's a liability I've inherited from my family of origin and what's an asset? It's very simple. What's an asset that I, I love that's been 
inherit and then what's the liability? So in my life, an asset is I come from a very adventurous family of origin. My parents eloped to Canada from Australia. They toured the world for four years. My dad worked in uh, Formula One motor racing in Europe. My sister was born in England. So we have these big stories in our family of when mum and dad lived next to Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones. And mm. Bill Wyman came home drunk one night and mum had left the stroller out in the hallway, the pram for your Aussie mm-hmm. and English listeners. And Wyman kicked the pram out. And, but not just my, <laughs> not just my uh, parents, but my grandparents. Like my grandfather started scuba diving in his 70s. He was the oldest scuba diver in Australia. He's in the Guinness Book of Records for being the oldest aerobatic pilot in the world. Like, mm. so, so these generational traits of adventure, and that would explain partly why I moved countries and started afresh. It's, it's generational. That would be an asset I'm very proud of. And then a liability would have, has really affected my walk with the Lord, which is that cusses never need anything. We always help people in need. And when you hear that, you're like, well, that's an incredible asset and is largely why I'm in ministry. I like to help people but when it comes to prayer, I, I, my default, I never pray for myself. I, I have a list, but I don't, it's, it's unnatural for me to sit with the Lord and just enjoy the Lord's. Now, enjoying the Lord's presence is fairly straightforward for me, but being needy in front of the Lord, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a number of people in my life with this transition I'm in right now. I've got a number of people reaching out and praying for me. They're incredibly kind. And they say, Steve, how can I pray for you? And I look over my shoulder at who they can pray for. And that would be a liability mm-hmm. is, is I can't encounter the love of God if I'm not vulnerable with the Lord. So I learned a lot of that from doing my genogram. Mm-hmm. So a genogram, once you've made your family tree, you can code it. And so on my website, um, you can get a genogram key or you can Google them as well and download a genogram key and that'll teach you how to um, code them. On my website, we have a whole course on genograms. What we recommend you do is get a group of trusted people and present it to your trusted people. And they ask curious questions. And what you're looking for is generational traits and then assumptions that you carry from your family of origin. So my assumption that I'm the Pope, you know, that when I speak, it's just true. You know, you can't grow if you're not curious and you're not curious if you always think you're right. And of course, I always thought I was right to cover massive insecurity about being stupid. So I, I say that quite quickly, but obviously what I just described, there are several years of work, of, of, of brave and courageous work. So that's a genogram and, and it's an, an incredible tool. Uh, where it gets interesting too, Ruth, I've noticed is I've facilitated genograms with people who maybe battle depression or like a bipolar uh, condition, they find tremendous relief when they see that in the generations ahead of them. They feel less wrong. Uh, they feel more free. So there's a lot of freedom to be found in a genogram. After people present them, you usually have what we call a genogram hangover. It is emotional work. You you do get a bit worn out by it. So you have to be yeah. kind to yourself. Well, and it takes time because gathering that kind of information, you have to go back to family members who know things that you don't know and ask them questions and track them down as much as you can. And the other thing, just to be clear about, is that you're not just mapping emotional patterns. I mean, you're actually mapping real things that happened. Like there's a symbol for emotional cutoff for someone who is estranged from the family. There are 
symbols for miscarriages and abortions and deaths and divorces and affairs. And I mean, like this is this it's, is big stuff and stuff comes out. I think probably for almost anyone who approaches a genogram, they're probably going to find out facts that they, they didn't know. And you got to be ready. It does this wonderful <laughs> gift of reminding you that you're human, that your family's human, and right. that God, supernatural God can use human-sized followers. You know, you were talking about some of the early books that formed your parents' mm-hmm. parenting, and, and I'm unfortunately familiar with some of those. I remember when I became a parent, uh, there was the Baby Wise movement. And um, if, if I, I'll just go on record of saying that if I come across <laughs> a copy of that book, I will burn it. Um, okay. All right. All right. Our, our podcast producer here is jumping out of her seat because she agrees with you wholeheartedly. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the idea, you know, you, uh, in that book, the, the author, I'm sure he meant well, but the shame that he put on parents is mind blowing to me. The author said, you know, the reason to let your baby cry is because God let his baby cry on the cross, which is just the worst kind oh, of exegesis. Wow. It's, but but the whole foundation mm. of the book is based on this idea. And uh, when you do a genogram, in contrast to those kinds of books that are trying to, to broadly brush something that should be nuanced, right? Like parents already yeah. feel guilty about not being good at parenting. That's what should be written about is, hey, mm. you're probably, if you love your child, you're probably doing pretty well. There's actually a wider set of boundaries with which to raise a healthy, thriving child than, than you think. Uh, none of us quite know what we're doing. Like, this is what's true. But you, I remember after I did my genogram, I went back to the patriarchs in the Old Testament because I was like, oh, man, I kind of put my family on display. Like, I hope mm-hmm. this is okay. And it was wonderfully liberating for me to realize I'm in a dysfunctional family like everybody else with with amazing people who are who are genuinely doing the best they can, just like I am. And you go back and read Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're like, you know what? I'm actually pretty good. I, I'm not a bad dad compared to those guys. And so that's the other gift of the genogram is it does dent the legalistic pressure that I think is in Christian publishing, not all Christian publishing, of course, uh, to, to live a certain way to be good with God. I think, I think that's the side effect gift as well. Yeah. And and I think another thing that we should say out loud and really affirm here is that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah. And the genogram is a way to get at truths that you might not be aware of that have been holding you hostage in a way you didn't even know. And so for us as Christians who really believe that the Spirit has been given to us to guide us into truth as we're able to bear it, and that Jesus affirms that we will know the truth and the truth will set you free, I pray that we can see this journey with the genogram. And even your question, Steve, which I think really is the practice for this week, and that is what is a trait or an asset and what is a liability that I've inherited from my family? I love that. I just, yeah. and maybe people are going to want to go as far as actually starting to work on a genogram. You will not get it done in one week. It's going to take yeah. you some time to really get a genogram filled out. But, you know, this is the journey towards truth. This is a journey towards freedom. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that, that the Spirit loves us and cares for us and will only guide us into truth as we're able to bear it. So if we uncover a truth that is new. Let's just believe that the Spirit revealed it now because the Spirit knew we were ready. So I wanted to just call attention to one of the things that you say in your book in this chapter six on applying family systems to leadership. You say that self-awareness alone will not bring about healthy change. 
So yes. we're sending people into a journey of more self and, and family awareness or themselves in the context of their families. When you say that self-awareness alone is not enough, what is, what, what is it that we're doing then? Yeah, I, I think, yes. I, I think this is a loaded question, Ruth, because I think you are, you've built a whole organization and ministry over on what I believe we should be doing, which is, is, is what's on the other side of self-awareness. So even yeah. if, if we go back to your story of you came to the end of yourself, you had people mm-hmm. that you trust speak into your life and they said, hey, what you're doing is not what everyone does. Mm-hmm. That was curious to you. You go on this family of origin journey. Okay, so now you're self-aware. But that doesn't lead you into transformation and liberation. I, I think what God invites the follower of Christ to do is to die to self is to offer these parts of ourself that are getting us into trouble to God in exchange for God's love and liberation. And so, to me, self-awareness is the beginning of the journey, but I do think, particularly in Western culture, I'm quite concerned that we've made it the end of the journey. Mm -hmm. I know my Enneagram number. I've taken all these profile tests. I know myself. I think we all know people who are self-aware jerks. None of us want to be around them. We certainly don't want to work for them but they're self-aware. And what they say is, this is just how it is. But they usually say it in a very aggressive way. This, this is just how I am. You're going to have to deal with it. Yes, right. But I don't think that's spiritual transformation. I think that's false self. So once you're self-aware, now the, the journey is courage, right? Courage, bravery. Uh, I'm sure this was true for you, Ruth. You have to sit in some discomfort and pain. You have oh, to yeah. bravely practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe we could even nuance it a little bit more and say it's death to the false self. You know, that the invitation is to die to the false self and to live as our true self in God. I totally agree with that. Which, as you say, to set aside an old pattern that you've relied on that has kept you feeling safe and to lay that aside and do something different is the courageous choice, right? That's the Viktor Frankl moment between stimulus and response. There is a space and in that space is the choice and the choice is to do something different than the false self would typically do, you know, to go against pattern. I would also wish to say that that Viktor Frankl space can sometimes be a space that takes three years. Yes. Uh, sometimes when we hear space, we say, oh, I've heard the oh, podcast. Oh, it's three seconds. Gonna, I got to yeah. make the right choice. <laughs> yeah, slow, slow work for sure. And so being kind to yourself is so important. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a great conversation this has been. Thank you, Steve, so much. And as, you know, as always, we want to leave our folks with something to practice. And I just love the question that you offered up. What's a trait in our family that was an asset? What's a trait in our family that has been a liability that I've inherited? And maybe even taking the step to explore doing a genogram and and hopefully with some help and guidance, I too was able to experience putting my genogram together in these trainings where we had a small group to work with. And it's really, really helpful to work with people who kind of know what they're doing and can support us a little bit. So I would suggest that and maybe your website is a good place to go to to receive some of the support that people might be looking for. Yeah. This. And, you know, Ruth, I can feel us wrapping this up and I'm, I am compelled just to give one thing. I'm sorry, as you, I can feel no, you're landing ahead. the plane and I'm relaunching mm-hmm. it here for us. But, you know, for people who are in transforming community, it makes sense to me that they could do a genogram in your community. But mm-hmm. for maybe your listeners who are not part of transforming community or any of my work and they're just listening, 
their best next move would be to call a marriage therapist. Just mm-hmm. call, call a Christian marriage therapist in town and bring three friends. I know it sounds funny. And pay a therapist to facilitate your genogram for you. Oh, that's, then a, you'll that's be, a great idea. Very simple yeah. because most marriage therapists are trained in system series. They're very familiar with genograms. And bring your friends. Bring people that are curious and it, you'll have a great time. But mm-hmm. but let somebody who's trained. <laughs> I'm seeing a cocktail party that. actually in my own mind. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun? Yeah, get yeah, some the friends, the therapist, and, you know, the genograms, yeah. and <laughs> but for you're making it sound it, fun. Well, people have heard about it and say, "Oh, I really <laughs> want to do that." I, I I would say tangibly, that's your next step: is mm-hmm. hire a Christian. I think a Christian therapist because they can bring gospel into it. But you yeah. can bring your friends to therapy. There's nothing yeah. stopping that. You bring yeah. your cheerleaders in, and uh, yeah, get the cocktails flowing. You have a great yeah. time. Yep, that sounds good. I think we're gonna have we're gonna have a fun a fun week paying attention to this. And for some of us, let's just also set the expectation this is not something you're gonna get done in a week. But this might be a calling and an invitation that'll take that'll unfold over the next several months for you. Yes. And so I just feel like I wanna pray right now and just ask God to guide us and our listeners. God, we thank you for just the ways in which you challenge us towards our growth and you bring to us these tools as we're able to bear them. And so for those who are listening today and they feel a stirring, they feel something rising up saying, yes, I've been waiting for this. God, give us the courage to walk in and to trust the Holy Spirit to be our guide and to guide us into truth as we're able to bear it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our counselor and our advocate and our guide. Make us faithful and courageous as we respond to these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, if you're listening to this in May or June or any time around there in 2022 or afterwards, then the Calm Aware Present Journal is available for pre-order. We're placing orders in May and then in June. You can go to www.stevecusswords.com. And depending on when you click on it, that'll either link you to the Kickstarter campaign for pre-orders or if you're a little after that, it'll link you to the Capable Life page where you can place your order We'll be delivering journals in August. As we've been saying over and over, everybody needs an intentional proven path. And the Calm Aware Present Journal is a 12-week journey, giving you a new tool each week, as well as daily reflection questions, midweek pause, and then an end-of-week reflection to help you lower reactivity and increase connectedness. So if you want to know more, go to www.stevecuswiz.com and you can click through to place a pre-order for your Calm Aware Present Journal. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.